0: Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. For these four weeks of February, we're looking at the four values that make MCC what it is. And so if it was your first week last week, this is a great month to be new to MCC because you're going to hear some of the heartbeat of what makes MCC what it is over these weeks. If this is your first time here, just stay for the next three weeks and then you'll be able to make a really informed decision. But we're looking at the, at the four values that make MCC what it is. This makes up the, the culture of who we are. And so we talked about last week the fact that, that every country has a culture. Remember the first time you went overseas and you got into an airplane and you landed in this foreign place a few hours later and the sound was different and the sights were different and the culture was different and perhaps the language was different. And the first time I ever went overseas, I went to Asia and the thing that I remember is the smell of Asia that's just so different. And every time I go back, it's like this this old friend coming back because there's something different about the cultures of different places. And it's true for countries, but it's also true for families. For some families, it's like shoes can be worn anywhere in the house. And then for other people, they put like a little sign at the front of their house, like, please take your shoes off. That's just a cultural thing. For some families, you can put your feet on the coffee table. That's totally fine. For other families, if you even dared to hesitate putting your feet on the coffee table, like that would be sacrilegious, right? And, and so families have different cultures. The truth is individuals have different cultures. And if you don't believe me, just remember that first year you got married and the clash of civilizations that happened between you and your spouse, right? Because people have their own culture as well. Culture is simply this. Culture is the way things happen around here. And so for MCC... Our cultural statement comes actually from something that Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, that right in the middle of teaching on the good shepherd, Jesus makes this statement in John 10 verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. If it's stealing or killing or destroying, if it brings death and destruction, then truth is somewhere in its orchestration is the thief. But Jesus said, I have come. Jesus reveals for us His purpose in coming when He says, But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In that one sentence, Jesus underscores His purpose and highlights the values that make MCC what we are. That Jesus says, I have come. In other words, that we would be a proactive, initiative-taking, creative church. That we wouldn't be on the back foot, but, but, but no, we'd always be on our toes looking for new ways to be able to do things. And so that we'd be proactive. Jesus said, I have come. How grateful are you that Jesus wasn't waiting for us to make our way to Him. Instead, He made His way to us, that God took the initiative. Isn't that what the Scripture says, that we love God? Why? Because He first loved us. He demonstrated it in sending His Son to die for us while we were still sinners. And so that we would be a proactive group of people. We spent last week talking about that very thing, about being a proactive church. Jesus said, I have come, secondly, that you might have, which is what we're looking at today. That we would be others focused in everything we do. That in the midst of a world that is self-absorbed and self-obsessed, that the example of Jesus stands in stark contrast because Jesus wasn't coming to be served. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and that you and I would reflect the heart of God in that. That, that we would, in the midst of a culture that is self-absorbed and self-obsessed, that we'd be the kind of people who don't come to be served but to serve and refresh other people, that we would be others focused. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. That there would be something life-giving about this place. That there'd be something life-giving about the culture of what MCC is all about. That it would be slightly cheeky and that it would be fun and that there would be mess and that there would be noise. That this would be a life giving place that people would say of you and I that there's something different about them because we inject life into people. You know that there's people that you've met. Some of them used to be your friends, right? You spend five minutes with them and you leave exhausted. They have an innate ability to be able to suck the life out of you. Don't look sideways. This is a wrong time to be looking around the room, okay? Right? Right? We've all had experiences like that where we've sat down and in the middle of the conversation, we're like, I don't know how you're doing this, but I can feel it draining out of my body. The life is going. But then there's other people, right? Who you spend five or ten minutes with them and, and, and you find yourself constantly wanting to spend more time with them because something about being around them puts courage into you. That there's something about being around them just that the, the way they see the world and and the way they encourage and, and the way that they celebrate it just It puts life into you, that we would be that kind of church, that we would be a life-giving church. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. And not only that, but that you'd have it in all of its fullness. That something we see reflected in the heart of God is generosity. That God's grace isn't sufficient, it's more than sufficient. God doesn't give us some mercy. He gives us new mercies every single day. That there is something generous about the heart of God that doesn't just do what's required, but does more. And I pray that that would be true of us as a church as well. That, that there would be a generous way in which we live, which isn't about money. It isn't even necessarily about time. It's about a way that you live your life. Jesus said, he said, if, if you're asked to go one mile, then go two. Right? Right? which is one of those things that's like a little bit lost on us, but it made a lot of sense to people hearing it in the first century. Because in the first century, if you were asked by a Roman soldier or a Roman official to be able to carry something, you were required by law to carry it for at least one mile, without exception. But you were only required to carry something a and so Jesus says, you know what? You know that a part of the culture is that if you're asked by somebody to carry something a mile, then, then don't just carry it one, carry it two. Why? Because for every step of that second mile, that Roman official is thinking, why are they doing that? They're not required to do it. They're not obligated. to. Why are they doing that? That we would live in such a way that people would come into our lives and into our homes and into our families and say, well, why are you guys like that? Like, why are you so kind and and, and why are you generous? And, and, and why that, that people would come even into the ministries that are happening in the center and say, but I just come to the gym and why are you being so kind to us? Why have you arranged meals because we've had a baby and why would you do that? That that might actually lead people to another question that it's actually generosity more often than not that unlocks people's hearts because it's so different to the culture in which we live. And so that we would be a proactive, others-focused, life-giving, and generous church. So let me take a few minutes to talk to you about this one. What does it mean to be an others-focused church? Jesus said, I have come that you might have. What does it mean to be an others-focused church? Do you know, stitched into the DNA of this whole place is this desire to be others-focused. That that even for our founding pastors in Doug and Marty, through the center, we might have the chance to be able to serve our community long before we have the chance to be able to talk to our community about what we believe. And so stitched into our DNA is this idea of being others-focused. But here's the truth. A building can't do that. Only people can. On this journey, this because this is really important, and because some of you are new, right? And so if you've been on this journey for the last nine months, you would have heard this, but if you're new, you haven't heard it, right? This whole endeavor for us is not about there being a big building. It's about us becoming big people. Because a building can't reach the community, only people can do that. A building can't create community. It can be a meeting point, but a building can't create community. Only people can do that. A building can't serve people. Only people can do that. And so this is not about a building. This is about people, right? And it's about us becoming those kind of people, those others-focused, Jesus-reflecting kind of people. The one of the exciting things at the moment is seeing programs begin to be established and, and through the center and throughout the week and then things that are happening on Sundays and some Discovering Christianity classes that will start in March in anticipation of people being baptized at Easter and Alpha commencing. And, and it's exciting seeing these programs begin to take shape even in these early stages. But, but, but again, programs can't do this. Only people can. That, that programs do not reach people. People reach people. Alpha might just be a vehicle, but it's the people involved in Alpha and those relationships and conversations that happen before and after and during and long after someone's finished doing Alpha. That's what really life change happens. And so programs don't reach people. Programs don't disciple people. It's not the connect groups. It's the people leading those connect groups, the people involved in those connect groups. And so it's not about a building It's about people. It's people. It's you and I that turns this from a recreational center into a center from which ministry takes place. And so what does it mean to be an others-focused church? It means at least these three things. Number one, it means to assume everybody is coming to the party. It means to assume that everyone is coming to the party. A number of years ago, in the church that I grew up in, in Townsville, my parents who'd built their home in proximity to where the church was, and there's also a school attached, had completed an extension on our family home. And just before my 21st birthday, they'd sort of extended out a couple of rooms and then some bedrooms and stuff higher. And and they'd completed that just before my 21st. And so we had for my 21st, a couple of parties. And the last one of those was on a Sunday night for some of my friends. And there was about 40 people coming back after church on a Sunday night to my parents' house. And so we had planned for that, organized for that, given out invitations for that. But one of my best friends was probably the most, outgoing, the most outgoing person in church. And we had had at that stage what really was a revival amongst university students in Townsville. And so um, Elise was sort of right at the very start of that, of all these uni graduates who'd all just started coming along to church and getting saved. And so he decided he'd just invite every person he could find after church on a Sunday night. And so on the Sunday night of my 21st, about 120 people rocked up to my parents' house. They had catered for about 40. And so my mom is racing around, like, ordering pizzas and getting this together. And the young adults pastor happened to be there and thought, this is actually a really good idea. as like an after-church venue. My parents' house was so close to the church, people could walk there or drive there quickly. And, and so my parents' home became like the second location of the church. Um, Like almost like the church could have paid rates on my parents' house. That's how many events got hosted there. And so in the end, what happened was there were so many people who would come on these monthly young adults hangout nights to my parents' house that it was becoming a problem for the neighbors. My parents were in in a court of about 12 houses, and they're right at the end of the court. But you can imagine when you've got like between 100 and 160 people on any given Sunday night coming back to my parents' house, like the neighbors would get parked in. So we gave the responsibility to a guy called Jason. He was, he was affectionately known as Ranger Jason, had the most bright orange hair. And, um, and so we, we took a high-vis vest from the church, gave him a lighting baton, and we said to him, all right, you need to instruct people that when they're coming, they need to park on the main road, not park in the street. Park on the main road and then walk down the street quietly to get to the party um, as opposed to everyone parking in the street and then our neighbors can't get into their driveways. So that's what Jason did. And we left him there. Jason was out on the main road, Bayswater Road, in a high vis vest on a Sunday night with a lighting baton, which we'd taken from church, and he's directing traffic. I'm standing at the front door of the house. And so, and so as people are walking down, there's faces that I recognized, and people are sort of walking in. And, and, and then after a while, I started noticing people walking down the street that just didn't, I, I didn't know them, which wasn't unusual. It, it wasn't unusual to have people coming back to my parents' house, who, who maybe it was their first time in church, or I hadn't met them before, or whatever. But, but these people weren't just people I didn't know. It was like, there's like a 60-year-old couple that were walking down. And then there's like a family with little kids who are walking down. I'm like, what's going on here? And, and, then, and then as I'm meeting these people at the front door, I realize what's happening. Jason is standing on the middle of a busy road, one of the main roads in Townsville, directing every car to pull off and to park and then to walk down the street. And because he's in a high-vis vest and he has a lighting baton, everybody thinks he's working for council. And so there are, there are families on their way home on a Sunday night who are being directed to stop and then to go, going, what, what, what is this? What am, I being, what am I being coerced into here? And, and, and what I love about that, we had to give Jason some more instructions because it wasn't self-explanatory, but what I love about it is Jason's assumption was that every person driving on Bayswater Road on Sunday night was coming to the party. His assumption was that everybody was coming to this thing. And what does it mean to be an others-focused church? Well, in part, what it means is to have the heart and the idea that just assumes every person is coming to the party. There are people that you and I know who don't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The operative word being yet, they don't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That there are people that we've invited who've said no to coming along to church before. It's not that they're never going to come. It's just that they haven't come yet. That that there is this assumption that just everybody is coming to the party. Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter fourteen, which sounds a little bit the same. Jesus replied, John uh, Luke chapter fourteen verse sixteen. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to the master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. What does it mean to be an others-focused church? It means to assume that every person is coming to the party, that actually the desire of the master is that his house will be full. And so he says, go out into all the likely places, but they're not even just the likely places, go to the unlikely places. In fact, go to the blind and the lame, go out into the country lanes and the roads and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And so the invitation of the gospel went to everyone and anyone. It went to everyone and anyone, but they didn't all respond the same. And yet the invitation was the same for all. Because the overwhelming desire of the master was that no one would be left out. And so for you and I, what does it mean to be an others-focused church? It means to be the kind of church that assumes every person is coming to the party. Here's the second thing that it means. It means that as a church, we do church in the living room. Where you do church is really important, right? I'm being figurative here, right? But, but if you imagine the church as a house, then, then where you do church kind of says something about the kind of church that you are. Like, like for some churches, they're hosting church in the kitchen. Like everything about that church is about deep teaching. They're like always preparing meals. Like none of this milk stuff, like it's all about meat, right? They're always preparing a roast of some sort, Right? For some churches, that's where they do church. They do church in the kitchen. Everything's about deep teaching. For some churches, they're doing church in the bedroom. Everything is about intimacy with the Holy Spirit. They're being so intimate with the Holy Spirit that if a new person was to knock on the door, they wouldn't know. They're just lost in intimacy in the bedroom. And there's a place for that. For some people, they're doing church in the toilet. Their church is all about deliverance. They're always trying to get something out of you. For us, we do church in the living room. Because in the living room, there's, there's couches and it's comfortable. And there's a coffee table so you can put out snacks on the coffee table, right? And, and, and there's conversation that happens without it becoming too intense at any one point, right? It's a very easy place to be able to invite people into when you're in a living room. And I don't know if your house is like ours, but our living room is literally right in the, the very, towards the entrance of the house. And so, and so from the living room, you can hear if someone's knocking on the door. It's really easy to be able to go and open the door and come and join us. And, and so for, as a church, where do we host church? Our style is actually to host church in the living room. Andy Stanley, a pastor in America, said this. He said, the church is a family expecting guests. And so as a church, we're really deliberate about that. But both first of all, being the kind of church that just assumes every person is coming to the party. This is not a holy huddle. We are not the keepers of an aquarium. We are the fishers of men, right? But, but not only that, but also that we would deliberately then do church in the living room for that very reason that one of the things that that I'm deliberate about is trying to eliminate Christianese for that very reason, that that church should be approachable, that that, that church should make sense to somebody who hasn't come for the first time, that that church should make sense to you even if you've come from a completely unchurched background. And there's some things to church that are a bit unusual if you're not used to it, but, but sometimes we make church a lot weirder than it actually needs to be, don't we? Do you remember the first time if you went to church if you didn't grow up in church, do you remember the first time you ever went to church? Remember what that was like? Or or, or perhaps you remember the first time you ever invited a friend to church and you saw it in a totally new light. That actually one of the best things our worship leaders or our MCs or our preachers could do is just keep on inviting people to church who haven't come before because you see it in a totally different light. I remember the first time I invited one of my basketball friends along to church on a Sunday as a teenager. Because I went out on a limb to invite this guy along. He knew that I was involved in church, but he'd never been to church. Our trainings were always on Sunday mornings. And so I would generally stay for the service. And as soon as the service was finished, then race off to basketball. This friend came to church with me on that day. And I saw church in a totally new light. I realized that we make, sometimes make church a lot weirder than we need to. I heard things I'd never heard before. They'd been said before. I just hadn't heard them before. Just stuff from the platform that just without explanation didn't make a lot of sense. Like the worship leader kept on saying, hallelujah. And I felt the need to be able to explain to my friend, what is that? Because if you're not from church, what are they actually saying? What's that about? And then I think that day someone was leading in communion or perhaps they just were praying this way. But they started praying about a a hedge of protection. And my friend's like, how much protection can a hedge give you? (laughs) And then sometimes we say even weirder things like, you know, we're washed in the blood. What the heck does that mean? Now, it has a meaning, right? Right? It's not lost. But also sometimes we can start to use language that immediately puts someone who's not from this context completely off. We start talking about hallelujah or washed in the blood or are you saved? Saved from what? Born again. That sounds like a painful experience. Come and join us after the service for some fellowship. What the heck is that? And so we want to be the kind of church where people feel comfortable to be able to bring unchurched friends along and know that they're not going to be embarrassed, to be deliberate about that. Here's the third thing. To assume everyone's coming to the party, to host church in the living room. But here's the third one. It's to be able to get down in the dirt with people. In John chapter 8, there's a story It's an account of an interaction that Jesus has with some religious leaders and a lady who's caught in the act of adultery. And really in this story, there is one line that kind of, if you were to try and boil the gospel down to a phrase, perhaps this could be considered. It's in John chapter 8 and verse 3. This is where the story begins. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him, talking about Jesus, a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such, a, that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Verse 6, they said this to test him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. There's the line. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, "Woman, where are those who those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you?" She said, "No, Lord, no one, Lord." And Jesus said to her, "Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more." What does it mean to be an others'- focused church? It, it means to it be the kind of church that assumes everyone's coming to the party to be the kind of church that's that standing in the middle of an intersection in a high-vis vest, just assuming that every person needs Jesus. So if there's an opportunity, then then we want to be able to direct people. It, it means to do church in such a way that, that actually it's approachable and it's palatable for people. Whether you grew up in church or, or whether you've never been to church before, that, that actually this, this makes sense, and, and it ought to make sense. But but also it means being committed to actually getting down in the dirt with people as well. That Here is this lady who's been caught in the act of adultery. Notice there's no guy who's mentioned here, like there would have been somebody else involved for this to actually be a real scenario. But, But the religious leaders aren't interested in that. They aren't even particularly interested in this woman. Like is often the case when you find religious people, their concern is actually the do's and don'ts. They're looking for a way to be able to trap Jesus. Their concern is not for this woman at all for her humiliation or for her outcasting as a result of this whole episode. And so they sort of throw her down and they say to Jesus, so so, so what should we do, right? Because the law says that we should and so what do you say? And they're trying to find some sort of way that in his remark or what he says, they might find a way to be able to try and trap him in their questioning and Jesus won't have anything to do with it. In fact, he almost just completely ignores what they've got to say and he gets down in the ground and he begins to draw in the dirt. And so they keep on pestering him. They keep on asking him questions. And and then Jesus sort of says, all right, well, then you who's without sin, you cast the first stone, and then he goes back. When they all leave, realizing that none of them are in a position to play the role of judge, the only person without sin in this whole story is Jesus. He's the only one with a legal right to be able to do that very thing. And yet Jesus is the one person who actually addresses this woman as a person, right? Not as an object to be used, even as an instrument to be able to trap Jesus. No, no, Jesus sees her as a person. He's the one person who's willing to get down on that level. And notice Jesus doesn't condone her sin. He says to her, go and sin no more. But Jesus does connect with her in her pain. Jesus does connect with her in her humiliation. That that Jesus is willing to be inconvenienced. That Jesus is willing to be able to get down low. That, That Jesus is willing to be able to do the work where it really happens in the trenches with people that the, one of the things I hope is true about MCC is that we would be others-focused, not simply because we were friendly on Sunday. In some ways, that can even be a little bit off-putting. I know you've not had this experience, but you know sometimes like if you've come from a church background where it's like, it's like a gauntlet to get to your seat because there's like 15 people trying to high-five you down there, it's almost like a little bit off-putting. We just dial back the intensity a little bit, just let people find their seat, right? But, but not because we're friendly on a Sunday, but because we're willing to do life with people in the trenches, that we're willing to have those difficult conversations, that this would be a place where people can grow in their faith and be discipled and where you and I can challenge one another and that that would be the kind of church that we would be. Because after all, don't we see that reflected in Jesus himself? I pray that we'd be the kind of church where we're not afraid to be others focused, where we're willing to be interrupted, Where we're willing to go the extra mile. Where one of the things people would say about us as a church is that that's the kind of church that puts people first. I pray that that's true of us. I pray that that's true of the way that Elise and I lead this church. That that is always the case. That we never become too busy for people or become so rushed in what we're doing that we focus on the programs or the tasks and totally miss the whole reason why we did this in the first place, that we would be others-focused. But when I think of others-focused, ultimately, and this is where we're going to finish this morning as the worship team comes back, but when I think of being others-focused, ultimately the example for that is Jesus, isn't it? And you could choose lots of moments from the Gospels where Jesus demonstrates being others-focused, where Jesus is interrupted on the way to do something, where, where, where Jesus heals a person that wasn't in his schedule or itinerary, but he just made time for it because the need was there. But for me, ultimately, the picture that I have, and I share this with every person who comes into the center, is this, is when, is when Jesus is in the middle of redeeming all mankind. He's hanging on the cross. Do you remember this story? Where Jesus is hanging on the cross in Luke 23, right? And there's a sinner on his right and a sinner on his left. And there's a, and there's a conversation that breaks out between the two of them. The one of them yells out and says, if you really are the son of God, then like, save yourself and save us too. And then the other one's like, well, you can't say that. Like, this is the Son of God. And, and they have a conversation. And, and this sinner that's on his left says to him, remember me, Jesus. And Jesus, right there in the middle of redeeming all mankind, the reason why he'd actually come to earth, takes the time to address this guy. and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, if I'm Jesus in the middle of redeeming all mankind, I'd be like, guys, can you shut up? I'm concentrating. Like this is really important, right? Like what I'm doing right now, this is like like my primary objective, right? This is like right at the top of my to-do list, right? But not Jesus. Jesus is in the middle of redeeming all mankind and He still has the time. With Roman nails pressed in through his flesh, he still has the time to have a conversation with two guys who happen to be hanging on crosses beside him. That Jesus, in the most spectacular ways, demonstrates for us what it actually looks like to be others focused. That there would be something humble about the culture of this place. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That there would be something of that DNA that's also true for us. that humility is not us thinking less of ourselves. It's actually just not thinking about ourselves at all. It's actually being focused and intentional about other people. Because there's a whole world full of people. Some of them are sitting in the row with us right now. And some of them have come along to church once or twice, but haven't come since. Some of them grew up in church and, and swore that they'd never go back to a church in a million years. There's a whole world full of people that needs to know that God loves them. That it doesn't matter who they are or where they've been or what they've done, that He has a plan for their life not to harm them, but to give them a hope and a future wilder than they could possibly imagine. And the amazing thing about God is that God chooses to use us in demonstrating and expressing that very thing to the world in which He's placed us that we would be in every way others focused. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we pray? Holy Spirit, I just ask right now for every single person who's in this room, that God, you would move right now by your spirit. That God, you take some of what we've shared this morning and God, that you would impress it. God, you'd seal it in our own hearts. Holy Spirit, ultimately what I'm asking you to do is to break our hearts for people. That God, you would break our hearts for the people who are sitting next to us, who are part of our church family. Do we take the time to get to know them? God, I pray that you break our hearts for the plight of people who don't yet know your grace and mercy the same way that we have. That, Lord, we wouldn't be able to see people the same. God, those people that are in the the drop-off to school line with us, that we wouldn't see them the same. God, the people that we're doing our uni course with or who we're working with or, God, our friends and family, that, God, we would see them not the way that we have, but, Lord, that we begin to see them the way that you do. Holy Spirit, that you would break our hearts for people. That God, you'd wake us early in the morning and keep us up late at night praying for people. Praying for people that you've put on our heart, that God would have the boldness and the courage to be able to stand in the gap for them. That they might know there is a God in heaven who loves them, who cares for them, who's got a hope and a purpose for their lives. God, I pray that you would use us as instruments in your hands to do that. That we might in every way reflect Jesus in this part of our culture and our DNA as a church, that we would be in every way others focused. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC. Have a blessed day and until next time, bless you.